Well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this evening. Indeed, we do want to be learners of your word. Your word tells us that you have given to us everything that pertains to life and godliness. It also encourages us that we are to be not only hearers of the word, but doers of it. We know, as we've been talking about, that we are forgetful people. Our minds can only absorb so much and hold on to so much. So we pray that we would pay attention to what uh, Chris was talking about tonight and the comments that have been made, that we would be faithful learners and doers of your word. Now, as we come to the preaching of the word, we pray that we would have those same thoughts in mind, that we would be listening to what your word teaches, that we would be eager and hungry to learn, absorb, digest, and be doers of your word, Lord, and live it as we've been talking about. So we pray tonight, help us do this. We pray that your spirit would teach us, as is his ministry, to our own hearts. We pray that you would change us by your power, with the glory of your Son, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's turn to the book of Nahum. It's a, a very small book. It's only a three chapters but boy, I'll tell you, the, much like the small epistles in the New Testament, the minor prophets are, they're small, but boy, they pack a punch, thank you. They pack a punch, don't they? Um, you know, James Montgomery Boyce years ago said that uh, men say so little in so many words, but God says so much in so few words. Isn't that the truth, that we can take a verse and ponder on it for some time and and walk away still not knowing everything that says. So tonight we'll be looking at Nahum. Lots of content in a, a relatively few words in Nahum. Well, as the book of Jonah covers the, the repentance of Nineveh, the book of Nahum is referred to some, by some, as a sequel to Jonah, as it covers the end and destruction of Nineveh just about 150 years later after Jonah had gone to the city, re preached repentance. The city repented, embraced the gospel, and was uh, spared God's judgment. Nahum, well, not much is known from the book about Nahum, and all we know about him from the book itself is in the opening verse, really. Uh, Nahum means comfort and consolation, and you, you might ask, well, that's an odd name or a concept for such a, a, a book about such destruction on the city of Nineveh the, and the destruction of the Assyrian Empire. The Nineveh was the, the capital city, and like Washington, ran, ran the country, ran the nation. So when, when uh, Nineveh went, so went the nation, like Washington, D.C. If it was gone, uh, it would be the end for our nation as well, in many ways. But as we will see as we look through this, this little prophecy, uh, it's a fitting name, really. It's a fitting name. We'll see that as we go through. Uh, Nahum's prophecy against the city of Nineveh would have, been a, would have been significant for the people of Judah in the south, the, who would have needed encouragement in the day of, uh, in the face of this terrifying power of the Assyrian Empire. We'll look at Assyria a little bit more in a few minutes, but Assyria was big, powerful, strong, mighty army, and they were a brutal people. 
when they attacked and took over a city. The Syrians uh, date uh, suggested the timing of Nahum's ministry as the the mid seventh seventh century uh, B.C. about between the years of six sixty three and six fifty four. Nahum preached during the reign of uh, King Manasseh, one of the the most evil kings in Judah's history. Nahum came on the scene about 150 years after Jonah. As we have seen in a previous uh, sermon on Jonah by Neil here a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, he, he was sent to Nineveh. Uh, Jonah was, was sent to Nineveh, Nineveh city, capital of the Assyrian Empire, to preach the gospel of repentance to those people. From Jonah, we know that the Ninevites did hear and repent, praise God, they the gospel, repented, and came to know Christ. But over 150 years later, the Ninevites reverted to their old ways. They had, as we were talking about, they were not learners. They forgot the message of the gospel. Um, in Nahum, we find a continuation from Jonah's prophecy of how God is going to deal with the city of Nineveh. Knowing how evil and brutal the Ninevites were, and what we know about Jonah, Jonah may have rejoiced in this day. He did not like Nineveh. He he knew Nineveh, and he was reluctant to go, and he went in the opposite direction when God told him to go. And you'll see why as we talk a little bit about Nineveh and the Assyrians. Um. So the book can be divided basically into two sections. Uh, chapter one uh, is the is talks about the anger of the Lord, the, the Lord, the attributes of God's anger and righteous vengeance. And then the second part we see the overthrow of Nineveh, and that's in chapter two and three. In the opening verses, we don't have much on Nahum, but we find out much about who the Lord is. The first thing Nahum says is in chapter one, verse two. he describes some of the attributes of God, and he says that a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversary. So the first thing we see is that God is a jealous and avenging God, right out of the text. And the second thing is we also see that the Lord is avenging and wrathful. And the third thing in that verse is his vengeance is holy, and holy wrath is coming on his enemies. In this case, it seems like it's a, it's a protection that brings on vengeance. You, uh, you hear about the good Lord being jealous. Husband and wife, someone kind of hones in on that territory, one of them is going to become jealous. Righteous jealousy that brings on some judgment because of something that is being protected. And so the opening declaration implies that there is something that belongs to God and someone or something is interfering with the relationship that provokes his jealousy. God's righteous jealousy provokes his protection of what is his, and that is namely Israel and Judah. It's a protective vengeance. Now with the Ninevites, 
just as, as they had devastated cities and populations, so it would happen to them. They are reaping what they have sown. They have sown the wind and in their impenitence would surely reap the whirlwind. So he reserves his wrath for his enemies, says Nahum. The first thing we see is that um, what we see that the Lord is slow to anger also. Jonah said the same thing. Nahum 1.3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. The second thing we see in verse 7 is that the Lord is good. So he is jealous, he is vengeful, he is slow to anger, uh, and, the, and the Lord is good. Uh, the Lord is slow to anger, great in power. The Lord by, by no means will leave the guilty unpunished. Verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And as we look in, at this Old Testament scripture, one might ask, well, which is it? Is God jealous, avenging, and wrathful, or is he slow to anger? Is God avenging and wrathful, slow to anger, or good and a stronghold in the day of trouble? Well, it's not really an either-or question, is it? So the answer would be yes. He is both. He is both. As we move through the text, we'll see that now these are displayed, how these are displayed really depend on you and me and your relationship to and with God. What is your relationship will dictate what God's, how God displays his attributes on you. In the book of Nahum, we see that Assyria is about to come to face to face with the wrath and vengeance of God. Why? Well, because they provoked God to jealousy, wrath, and vengeance. Well, what does this wrath look like? Well, look at uh, verses uh, 3 through 6. Uh, Nahum writes uh, in, in chapter 1, 3 through 6, uh, you look at some of this language here. He says, in, in whirlwind and storm is his way. In Scripture, typically whirlwind and storm is a expression of God's severe judgment. He goes on, and, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. Uh, Bashan and, and Carmel were known for lush pastures, and he says here that they are dried up. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Paul will verse, you, know, we can, you can turn to if you want to, is found in uh, Psalm 97. I love this passage. Uh, Psalm 97, 1 through 6 says this, The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax 
before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. If you're anything like me, I do not like lightning storms. Well, I don't mind lightning storms if I'm in a secure building. I used to go hiking a while back, and I was with somebody on a, on a uh, 4,000 footers up in uh, northern New Hampshire, and, and uh, a storm came on. And like you're, you know, you're 3,000, 4,000 feet up, there's, there's no place to go but under trees, which is not recommended, you know. And uh, well, a storm came in, lightning and thunder. It was, it was, uh, it was getting a little, a little test. It was not right on us, but it was, you don't know where it's coming. You know, you don't know what's going to be next, right? And the guy I was with, he's a, you know, real joke. I guess he had no fear because I said, man, what are we going to do? And he had these, these metal hiking poles and he, he you know, lays it up in the air. I'm thinking, hey, great, good suggestion, you know. But I do not like lightning and thunder in it when I'm outside in it. I, I just, it's just something about it. It's, it's a severe, it's the power of God, you know, it's severe. And if God wants me to be struck by lightning, it won't matter if I'm in a building or out of it. But for me, that's a weakness, I guess. But I, uh, clouds and darkness and lightning are very uh, intimidating to me. Well, Nahum 1.6 says, who can stand before his indignation? Who can stand? Who can endure the burning of his anger? And the obvious answer is no one. No one. So he's, Nahum is kind of setting the stage for this, this judgment that's coming on, on Israel. He's listing these attributes of God and he's talking about this judgment that's coming and letting us know that it's coming and nobody can stand before the Lord. The pride and strength of humanity wither, it says, and come to nothing before the anger of the Lord. His wrath, he says, is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. God's avenging wrath looks like chaos and destruction. You think of the the flood in Genesis 6. Chaos and destruction. Destruction of the face of the earth. And what Nahum is communicating is, if you are in our eye are on the wrong side, of God's righteousness, we will not stand. At this point, Assyria is on the wrong side of God's righteousness, and judgment is coming on Assyria as they will not stand. God is going to crush this mighty nation. As we have just seen in Scripture, God has the power and ability to do it. But there's great hope here in this, in this, uh, this book, Judah will no longer have to be worried about Assyria. That's the hope. In Nahum 1.7 says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Namely, in this text, would be, uh, would be Judah. Notice the contrast in verse 6 and 7 and how it works with Assyria and Judah. Assyria is big. They are devouring nations all around them. Big army, big nation. Israel has already been swallowed up by Assyria. And Judah is probably thinking, where next? Here they come. But Nahum says, no, 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 that's not it at all. Little Judah's giant army, Assyria, was no match for the wrathful and powerful, righteous and vengeful God. See verse 8. But, it, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight. 
and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. The language of judgment is nothing new. Look at Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Then the Lord passed by in front of him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. It sounds like a fulfillment of Jonah and Nahum. Nineveh experienced both mercy and judgment, depending on the side that they took. Under Jonah, they repented, as we know, and received mercy. Under Nahum, under Nahum they sinned and received wrath. God will not acquit the guilty. While the people forgot the proclamation to turn from sin from the king of Nineveh, in Jonah 3.8 says this, both, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. It's repentance language. And let, let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Well, they, they did that and God held back his judgment on Nineveh. 150 years later, the king's words weren't even a distant memory. They had forgotten. You know, we talked about learning, right, and forgetting tonight. They had taken pride in their, their violence, their evil, and now God is going to bring judgment on Nineveh. Well, the Assyrians, number one, they, they trusted in themselves instead of God. They lost that trust. They, they thought because they were big and mighty, they had control, and they did. they did. They were big and they mighty, and they had some control. But like many nations today, they, the superpowers of our day are like that, right? Our, our country is like that. We think because we are big, we are powerful, we have great military, we have the best technology militarily, that we can, we can do just about anything, you know? And that's just simply not the case. We are big and powerful. God has blessed us with much technology, but those, those are nothing in the view of God. They didn't learn from history. You know? uh, chapter 3, 8 through 10, Assyria. You are no better than no, no Amon, which, is, which was situated by the waters of the Nile with water surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea, Whose wall, consist, whose wall consisted of the sea. Ethiopia was her might, and Egypt too, without limits. Put and Lubim were among her helpers, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Also her small children were dashed to pieces. At the head of every street, they cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound with fetters. Like many nations of the past and present, the Assyrians, uh, they thought, were immune to failure. and Nothing was further from the truth. Much like the, the strong nations of our day, Russia, China, North Korea, some countries of the, the Middle East, and yes, the U.S. of our day feel the same way about themselves. But listen to what God says to Nineveh. 
He says their strength in, in uh, Nahum 3, 12 and 13, he says their strength is nothing compared to God's strength. All your fortifications are fig trees with ripe fruit. When shaken, they fall into the eater's mouth. Behold, your people are women in your midst. The gates of your land are open wide to your enemies. The gates of the rivers are opened and the palace is dissolved. So he's comparing the, the army of, of Nineveh to just women, just weak women. Sorry, that's not PC, but you know, today, um, you know, the comparison, these strong, mighty warriors, and, and, he, and he compares them to uh, a room full of women. They're, they're not anywhere near as strong. And he says, the, the gates of your land are opened wide to your enemies. The gates of the rivers are opened and the palace is dissolved. Well, God is saying, you, you think you're so powerful, but you're not at all. You're no match. You're no match for me. All your weapons and walls are like a tree with ripe fruit. You know, you go up to a, a fruit tree at the end of the, at the, end of the season, you just, you just shake it, right? And the, the fruit just falls right off. This is like it falls into the, the person's mouth. It's ready. It's ripe. He goes on. By comparison, your mighty and strong soldiers are like women. Their big protective gates and palace are nothing for God. In uh, and, and two, uh, 2.6, the gates of the rivers are open and the palace is dissolved. What they trust in will come to nothing. The book of Jonah, three times God speaks of Nineveh as the great city, the great city. Sennacherib more than doubled the size of the city, making it the world's largest city for that time. Its circumference was about 60 miles, containing about 350 square miles. And if you were to put that into the, what we have today for cities, that would be about the size of Dallas or New York, kind of close in, in size there. So those are significant cities. The inner city was surrounded by a wall eight miles in circumference. Neil talked about this when he, when he preached on uh, the book of Jonah. Uh, the inner city was surrounded by a wall eight miles in circumference. The walls were 100 feet high and so broad that, see if you remember, how many chariots? Three. Who said that? Very good. Very good. Three chariots could ride on top of the wall. Um, the, uh, they were fortified and with, de with depending on what you read between 1200 and 1500 towers each of these being 200 feet in height on the basis of scripture reference to the great number of, of young or infirm in Nineveh namely he says, it says that 120,000 persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left. The population of Nineveh was estimated at about 1 million people. I don't know, I didn't look up the million, 1 million population, but that's a significant amount of people. What city would that be compared to today? I don't know. But... Um, Sennacherib's palace was called a palace with no rival. It was 
of cedar, cypress, and alabaster. Lions of bronze and bulls of white marble guarded it. Its great hall measured 40 by 150 feet. His army, armory, where he kept his chariots, armor, horses, weapons, and other equipment covered 46 acres and took six years to build. This is a, a massive city, strong city, intimidating city. There was nothing that's going to penetrate this city right, outside of God. It was a magnificent city, but it was a wicked city. It was so evil. The Ninevites had no regard for human life. They had a reputation for brutality. So in Nahum 3.1, we can see why Nahum writes, Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots. Horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses, and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies, all because of the many hollow trees of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her hollow trees and families by her sorceries. He goes on in chapter 3, verse 19. There is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who bear, hear about you will clap their hands over you. For whom, on whom has not your evil passed continually? Well, in, I quoted from it this morning, but a great tool if you uh, are into buying books. Uh, Explore the Book by J. Sidlow Baxter is a great tool for uh, overviews of the Bible, books of the Bible. Just a lot of data, a lot of information. He writes this, J. Sidlow Baxter writes about the brutality of the Ninevites. He says this, There are two awesome facts about Assyria, which gave Jonah a vehement dread of its wicked capital, Nineveh. First, Assyria was the rising world power destined to destroy Israel and Jonah knew this. Second, the notorious brutality of the Assyrians, Assyrians was such as to make the surrounding people shudder with a sickly terror of ever falling prey to them. They reveled in hideous cruelty on those whom they vanquished. Well, history reveals that the Assyrians relished every detail of torture. Massacre, battlefield executions, and human displacement that made Assyria the dominant power of the Middle East from about 900 to 612 BC. That's a long span of brutality. Assyrian art contains some of the most appalling images ever created. In one scene, tongues are being ripped from the mouths of prisoners that will mute their screams when in the next stage of their torture, they are flayed alive. A surrendering general is about to be headed in, and a third prisoners have to grind their father's bones before being executed in the streets of Nineveh. 
soldiers decapitated and the defeated enemies and built pyramids out of their heads. They also decorated trees with the heads of the enemies. A little brutal, right? You can see why God would judge this, this city. The Ninevites were so wicked, God calls them contemptible. And as I was reading these descriptions of the brutality of the Assyrians, I couldn't help but wonder what goes on with the preborn in our nation in the abortion industry. Is it any different, really? I mean, these soldiers are ripping off heads. They do it in the womb, right? If you know anything about abortion, the same thing. It's no different. It's just no different. Um, abortion is just a little less graphic, a little bit less open, a little bit less visible, right? In a white room, white in a white sterile room with doctors and nurses and so on. It is no different. It's an abomination before a holy God. And God will one day judge that. One day. They're contemptible. Um, Nahum 1.14, you were back there. He says, I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. And this word literally means you are small, you are insignificant, and you are cursed. Well, let's not miss the message of Nahum. I'm sure you're not missing it, but we too live in a, a time that glorifies violence like the Ninevites did and the Assyrians. Look at what's on TV and movie theaters and what's available in video games. Watch the news and watch the violence. It's there. It's all around us. Notice the, also the entertainment industry, how much of that is including violence, uh, how much of it promotes violence and the, the works of the flesh that we see in Galatians chapter 5, 19 through 21. How much of that is promoted in our entertainment industry? I'll just read. Let me just read the list. You know? uh, he said, the, need, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality. That's certainly in the industry, the entertainment industry. Uh, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. It's everywhere. It is everywhere you look on, on television. Well, we live in a world that loves evil and exalts it every day. And we are in dangerous times before a holy God. We live in a nation that is strong and mighty, but not stronger than God. And we can be a brutal nation. As I said, what about the slaughter of the innocent in the womb? We've perfected that. While the message for name is a message for us as Christians, we do, do we seek to look like the times, or are we seeking to look like the timeless holy God? We all have to ask ourselves that question. And the message of Nahum is a message for us. Uh, John's prophecy in, in Revelation is a reminder that God will one day judge the nations for their wickedness. In all 
the judgment laid out in Nahum, there is good news in the book. Seems like a bleak picture, but there is good news. See uh, chapter 1, verse 15, where God remembers his people. He says, Behold, on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feast, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. Nineveh is coming to an end. Stand with God and find God's protection. Nahum chapter 2, 1 and 2. The one who scatters has come up against you. Man the fortress, watch the road, strengthen your back, summon all your strength, for the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob. Like the splendor of Israel. Even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches. God will one day restore these people. Well, realize this, that, that God is in control of the nations. We don't have to be worried, even though things look bad. God watches over his world. God is in control of his world, his nations, and his church. So we have to do, as Jonah did, and preach the gospel truth. with the hope to rescue those who are taken captive in sin, with the goal to bring about obedience to Christ. We know from Revelation that, like Nineveh, God will one day bring his wrath, vengeance, and judgment on the nations. In fact, God has to. He has to. He has no choice. He's made a promise that he will do it. So he has to do it. He will do it. So what do we do in the meantime as Christians, the Christian church? Well, do we just sit back and wait and gloat in the idea that, yes, those wicked people, that judgment is coming on the wicked nations and, and not on the people of God? You know, yeah, we'll just wait it out, you know? Good. Let them have it. Well, I hope that's not our attitude. Uh, we are to be a city on a hill, right? A bright shining light to those sitting in spiritual darkness. And remember, as, as Jonah prayed in Jonah 4.2, he said, I, For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. See, God didn't gloat and enjoy destroying Assyria. Assyria brought it on themselves. They were begging for it. And God said, okay, I'm going to deliver. So remembering that, as we read tonight in Nahum, Nahum begins with warning in chapter 1, 2, and 3. He's a jealous and avenging God. Avenging, wrathful, takes vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves the wrath for his enemies also, let's remember that the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Nahum ends in final judgment. Nineveh fell, the king of Assyria fell, and the Assyrian empire fell. 
Nahum 3, 18 and 19, for your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Syria. Your nobles are lying down. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and there is no one to regather them. There is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you. For on whom has not your evil passed continually? Nineveh, the largest city in the world, was overthrown, never to be inhabited again. In fact, for many years, they could not even find where Nineveh was. I think I was reading somewhere about the, the 1800s, they finally uh, found through archaeology some, some remains of the city. That's a long time. Massive city the size of New York or Dallas. Can't even find it. That's some powerful judgment for people who thought they were unstoppable for so long. Well, one writer says this, Nineveh, the largest city in the world, was overthrown, never to be inhabited again. An unusual heavy flood of the Tigris carried away a large section of the huge rampart that surrounded the city. Through the gap in the wall, the enemy forced their way within the walls and captured the palace. The town was sacked, and a great number of the inhabitants were massacred. Thus fell Nineveh in 608 BC, according to the prophecy of Nahum. So completely was Nineveh destroyed that in the second century AD, even the site had become uncertain. The avenging wrath of God destroyed it. An unusual heavy flood of the Tigris River carried away much of it. The book closes with the response, all who heard these things, these events, the endless cruelty was ended. Well, a study of Revelation reveals that God is Judge Nineveh. He will one day judge the world and bring an end to evil. Nahum gives a promise of future hope in 2.2. He says, for the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob. So with that, we end the book of Nahum. Much to think about. Uh, it's just amazing as you look at the city of Nineveh and you look at the destruction that came upon it. Um, it's very sobering. Uh, destruction is real. God will not uh, look overlook sin. He will judge it. And one day we look forward to the kingdom where Christ reigns forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this book of uh, Nahum. We thank you for the, the hope that we have that Israel will one day be restored, that evil will not reign and rule. One day it will be destroyed as well. We thank you for this little book of hope. We thank you for the prophecy of Nahum and how archaeology even proves the, the very words of this book. So we we thank you for that. We thank you for your faithfulness to your word, faithfulness to your people, and the faithfulness to your character. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.